Now, before we uh, get into the sermon this morning, I felt the need to talk some about the things that are going on in our country and some of the mile markers uh, that, um, uh, that we have just moved past. And I also confess to you a certain, a certain weakness coming to you this morning. Um, and there, there are some days, it's not that there are these huge crises going on in your lives, but some days you just feel like, wow, man, life is really overwhelming. And the world I live in is really broken. Um, you know, we're one week out from the El Paso shooting, also the, the Dayton shooting, uh, but the El Paso shooting had this component to it that was just terrifying. It was all terrifying. You know what I mean. Uh, and we've all, also passed through the uh, five-year, what's the right word, memorial, anniversary of, of the, the shooting of Michael Brown. Um, I want to say that because of these things, that, the, that our world is different, things have changed, and, and they have. But in other ways, I want to say... They just expose things that have always been there, and we've been confronted with them in ways we just can't ignore anymore. The inequities in our communities, the insecurities that people are feeling, uh, the hatred and violence that, that gets born out of that fear, um, systemic problems in our social policies, and the burden of our leaders, uh, police, uh, politicians, uh, the burden of our leaders to plot a different and better course while at the same time trying to prevent another explosion of violence. Uh, the city of Ferguson still bears the physical scars of, of the protests that happened in response um, to the shooting. Uh, the metro area still bears the psychic and spiritual scars of what happened. And it seems like new wounds are being inflicted every week. Does it seem that way to you? It just doesn't stop. We can get overwhelmed. And when we get overwhelmed, we want to push it away. You know, that's not me. It's somewhere else. It's someone else. But the thing is, it's just not true. And the Lord calls on us to bear one another's burdens. I was struck recently, I was reading an article about the aftermath of what happened in El Paso, and I think... We need to think about broadly how people are bearing burdens here in St. Louis as well because of Ferguson. But in, in that article, um, the reporter talked, did some interviews, and uh, wrote this. A white man said his Latina wife from the Rio Grande Valley broke down after reading the shooter's manifesto. And she told him she's sorry if their family would be a target because of her. Man, what a burden. It's wrong. But there it is. How do we help each other? How do we help each other bear these burdens, the, the, the burdens of the wounds from Ferguson, from El Paso, and so many other places? Well, one thing we can do is pray. We can pray for each other. Even if we disagree about social policy or our politics, whatever it is, we can pray for one another. We can pray for our neighbors. We can pray for our city. And what I would like for you to do with me now is pray with me. In a little bit, I'm going to ask something of you about praying for the people right around you. But right now, just pray with me that the Lord would do something extraordinary. 
Let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning, and again, as I've said, I confess to you a certain sense of exhaustion and weakness in the face of unrelenting hostility, hatred, brutality, violence, chaos. We pray for healing for our city and for our nation. And these problems just seem so big. We need you. We need you. We pray for our African-American brothers and sisters experiencing the impact of racial discrimination and hatred, the wounds that they, they bear. We pray for Latino brothers and sisters feeling targeted. Show us how we, as a community, can speak and engage in a positive and constructive way to let our brothers and sisters know that we are for them, that, that they're not alone. Help us to know how to communicate that and to be in it with them, really, not just words. And Father, for those of us that are feeling apathy, move us, move our hearts to see that these are people made in your image. Many of them, many of them are believers. Move our hearts to compassion and then, and then to action that we might be a part of the healing of our city and our country. Work this, work this in us, we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, there's this grand vision <clears throat> of where we are headed as God's people, as God's family. We see it in Revelation chapter seven. It's the throne room of God, and in that throne room, uh, people from every tribe, every nation, every, every language, they stand as one family in worship of the Lord. And that, that's a big vision. It's a big, awesome, grand vision and we get excited about it, but also when we, we really engage with it, we're like, wow, that's big. It is big and grand. How in the world can I be a part of advan- advancing that? And I think the words of Martin Luther King Jr. are helpful in this regard. You don't know how you can help? It's too big for you? Well, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Do something. And one small thing you can do this week to keep moving forward is to pray for the people around you. Just a little bit ago, you, you greeted some, some folks and you got their name and maybe you've already forgotten it. <clears throat> but don't leave this room until you ask them, hey, how can I pray for you? Particularly as it relates to the, the aftermath of these shootings and, and what's happened in our city uh, after Michael Brown. How can I help you bear this burden? Maybe it's just something from your life, like me. I'm sending my oldest off to college this week. (laughs) Pray for me. (laughs) Don't leave this room until you've asked. Pray for one another. All right, let's turn to the word. We're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 8. It's the last sermon in our series, In Need of Grace. Um, And we end with... The Apostle Paul, a man who was in need of grace, but also, aside from Jesus, perhaps the greatest preacher of grace this world has ever seen. And we talk about Paul, trying to sum up the life of Paul in one sermon. There's so much, there's too much 
for the time we have to mention it all. But I think the best way to capture the core of who Paul was is to think of the joy he lived in having his heart set free by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He was freed from the slavery of sin and death and then became the apostle of that heart set free. We're going to look at a lot of passages this morning, but we're going to begin with Romans chapter 8 as it serves kind of as a big picture for this idea of being set free, how he set Paul free, but how he sets us all free. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Jesus, or from the law, uh, I'm sorry, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. And peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Would you pray with me? Father, again, we come to you and we pray that you'll be with us as we submit ourselves to your word. As you've been with us already in our praise, be with us now. Give give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us receptive hearts that we might hear the message that will set us free. Work that in us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, how many of you know what it is to follow a passion? I'm not asking for you to raise hands. Just want you to think about it. To be so passionate about something that, that you, you're going you're gonna to follow wherever it takes you, no matter the consequences. If you have lost business opportunities, if, even if it causes some strain on your family relations, if you risk financial ruin, maybe even physical danger, you'll risk that too to follow it. Now, some of us might call that an obsession, like something unhealthy. Uh, Daryl, that's, that's kind of over the top. And maybe it is. But... Isn't it some of what Jesus has called us to? Particularly in, in his parables, I think of uh, two parables of the kingdom, the, uh, the hidden treasure in a field and the pearl of great price where someone finds these things and then they sell everything they have. They get rid of everything they have to gain this treasure. Do you think of the kingdom of God as something so essential to your life, something so magnificent that everything else is a secondary consideration. Now, some of you might say, oh, I would love to be so free. And others of you are like, oh, 
that's really scary to be that free, uh, to be so taken with something. But that's the gospel, to be so freed that you'll follow God anywhere he leads. That's the freedom that Paul knew, and that's the freedom that he preached. Now, I've got to confess, um, the title of this sermon, Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free, I've uh, borrowed it. Uh, from a book that I read when I was in seminary. Uh, again, Paul, Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free, a book about his life and his theology. It was written by F.F. F. Bruce, a great Scotsman. Uh, and Bruce, you know, he was a fine academic, and he was working in, in a world, an academic world, his professional world, that scoffed at his professional conclusions that the New Testament documents were historically reliable. And he worked in a world that, that mocked his, his personal convictions that Jesus was indeed the divine savior. But he was free enough in his faith to do what he knew was right, to proclaim these truths, to write about them. And this is what he wrote about Paul and Paul's theology. Where love is the compelling power, there is no sense of, or, of strain or conflict or bondage in doing what is right. The man or woman who is compelled by Jesus' love and empowered by his spirit does the will of God from the heart. For, as Paul could say from experience, where the spirit of the Lord is, there the heart is free. Paul because of the gospel, was freed to follow the Lord wherever he led. Now, what, what lesson can we learn from Paul? What lesson can we glean from him? What I would say, one lesson we can learn is this, that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the gospel, it brings freedom. And so we should believe in Christ that we might know freedom as well. Do you want to know freedom? That becomes the question for us. Now, to understand the kind of freedom it brought Paul, the power of that freedom, um, and, and therefore, though, the power it could bring to us, we need, to, we, need, we need to know a little bit about the life of Paul, his background. So he was born, not Paul, but Saul, in the city of Tarsus in the Roman province of Cilicia. There you can see it there. Tarsus is kind of nestled in the corner there of uh, the Mediterranean Sea, and Tarsus was a major city of Roman imperial authority. I mean, it was a very Gentile city, uh, and he was a very Jewish boy, okay? Um, he was very intelligent, very capable. He had facility in at least three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It's possible that he also spoke Latin. And in that city of Tarsus, perhaps his, his own Jewish identity, his own otherness, it, it, pushed him deeper into that sense of identity. Sometimes when immigrants come to the United States, they just want to assimilate and they just adopt the culture all around. Others feel rejected by that culture so they become more intensely whatever their ethnicity is. And it's possible, and in fact it's likely, that, that Paul was not just Jewish, but he became a super Jew, you know, because he, 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 he really felt other. Um, a strong sense of national pride. 
He later moved to Jerusalem. He studied under Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Hillel. Hillel is probably the most famous and greatest uh, ancient Jewish scholar. Maybe if you've been on campus somewhere, you've heard of the Hillel Society. It's named after Gamaliel's uh, grandfather. Um, So he's studying in in, in the best places. Uh, His scholarship shows rabbinical training. He was a Pharisee. In fact, under Roman rule, you know, he's the kind of young man who was ripe for uh, radicalization, of really doing the hard things to defend his nation and his ethnic identity. And when Jesus came along, he saw a threat to his nation because Jesus was rocking the boat as it related to the relationship to the Roman Empire. And um, that, that needed to be dealt with. So he got involved in political and civic action. He was there when Stephen was stoned and he gave assent to it. And then, and then more than assent to it, he, he got involved and uh, he helped to drag people, men and women off to prison because they were followers of Christ. He became so uh, zealous that he, be, he pursued uh, believers to the city of Damascus, away from, from Jerusalem to stamp out this threat to the nation of Israel. And it was on that road to Damascus that he meets Jesus, and everything changes. And I'd imagine in his conversion, Paul wrestled with many things about himself, the things that he had done, his relationship with God. <clears throat> Here he was trying to serve God, and he finds that not only was, was he not serving God, he was opposing God. And he was being brutal and violent in doing so. There's guilt, there's shame, maybe even alienation. And the thing is, the gospel addresses all of those things and sets him free from that guilt, from that shame. And I want to talk about three things that he might have been wrestling with. Uh, you know, whenever we're confronted with the fact that we've been doing wrong, we thought we were doing right, but, but it really wasn't. We, we were confronted with this question, oh no, what have I done? He's been persecuting the church. What have I done? After that, we might think to ourselves, what kind of person does these things? Am I so corrupted that I can't even see what right is? He couldn't see his wickedness. And then we all tend to ask this last question. You know, in light of my actions, in light of my intentions, who am I? Who am I really? What what defines me as a person? We're going to look at all these questions. And, and as we ask the questions of ourselves, sometimes we don't always find comforting answers. We find ourselves trapped by who we are, the things we've done. But just like with Paul, Jesus has come to bring you freedom. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's look at what these this means for us. The first one, uh, what have I done? You know, when confronted with the person of Jesus, uh, the righteous God-man, but also our merciful Savior, sometimes the vision of our life and our actions change, changes. We see them in a different light. Certainly, what, that's what happens with Saul. Uh, Jesus confronts Saul on this road to Damascus, and he calls out to him, Saul, you know, uses his name. <clears throat> it's very personal. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear my name, it's like I can still hear my mom calling my name. I'm always in trouble. Daryl! 
Jesus calls out to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And with that confrontation, Paul's eyes are opened and metaphorically, and he sees the arrogance and even the blasphemy of what he's been doing, the cruelty and the violence of his actions. And he may have asked himself, oh, what have I done? What have I done? Now, we're very good at justifying ourselves. <clears throat> uh, whatever we're doing, you know, we have reasons for it. We're very good at hiding from the truth of the matter. I love a line from uh, uh, a song by Nickel Creek, Reasons Why. Uh, it just says, others have excuses, but I have reasons why. I'm always justified in my actions, aren't I? Aren't you? think about my own life and the decisions I've made. There are reasons the things, uh, the, the, there are reasons I've done the things that I've done. Uh, d- decisions I've made with my family. I can even think about, you know, the priorities I've had. Sometimes I'm like, well, I could be with my child at this event, but I, I have heavy burdens. I mean, I'm doing the Lord's work. <laughs> they can't understand it, but I'm doing important things. And so we miss the game or the recital, the award ceremony. And as I'm discovering this week, before we know it, they're off to college or they're moving across the country and the opportunity's gone and we go, what have I done? The burden of our failings as Parents, as spouses, as friends, as followers of Jesus. Um, this is the burden that, that Paul bore, bore, but maybe exponentially worse as he thought about the families that he broke up, as he dragged people out of their homes and threw them in prison. And it can be a crushing load when we realize what it is that we've done. And into that crushing load, we hear the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And under that load we go, uh, what? What did you say? Uh, That can't be right. I know what I've done. I can't undo what I have done. And the Lord goes on to say, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God is attending to the consequences of our failures in this life, spiritually, but also with our families. And as far as God is concerned, You have fulfilled your obligations. You are right with God. You are free from the slavery, the burden of the condemnation that you're bearing. Are you bearing up under a weight of guilt? A burden of it? Are you tired? Believe on Jesus because he frees you. He frees you from your guilt.
Christ has taken care of it, and so you can know freedom. And that freedom extends not just to our forgiveness, but into the kind of person we are, the kind of person we become. When we recognize the nature of the things we've done in our own self-interest, we might follow up with the question of, what kind of person does these things that I have done? What kind of person am I? Am I a slave to keep on doing this over and over and over again? Am I a bad person? And there are two answers to this. In and of ourselves, yes. Yes. We are given over to ourselves. But in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. And when I think of the slavery we have to ourselves, in and of ourselves. I, I think of a, a movie, uh, Schindler's List. Maybe some of you have seen it. Um, and in that movie, there's the depiction of a Nazi officer, Eamon uh, Goeth. Uh, he's the commandant of Krakow. How accurate this particular story is to what really happened, I don't know. But Eamon Goeth did exist, and he was the commandant at Krakow. And Oscar Schindler did exist. Well, in this scene, Oscar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, talks to Eamon, played by Ray Fiennes, about the nature of true power. And Schindler says, power is not simply executing justice on someone who's guilty, putting a man to death because he's done something wrong. That's, that's just the normal course of things. True power is the power to forgive, to look at a man who is guilty and say, I pardon you. Now, to, to Eamon, Again, the commandant of a concentration camp. This is nonsense. This is ridiculous. He says, you're drunk. But something rings true about it to him, and it eats at him. Later, when a Jewish boy, a prisoner at the camp, uh, is set to clean Amon's tub, and he fails to do so well, doesn't, he only uses soap and doesn't use lye, Amon is angry with him, but he decides to try on this idea of forgiveness, and he looks at the boy and he says, I pardon you. And he lets the boy go, but he can't let the offense go, and it eats at him. Um, He can't let go of the idea the boy has failed him. He can't, he's offended by the idea that forgiveness is greater than control, and so he's compelled to go out on his balcony as the boy is walking back to his, his uh, barracks and he takes a rifle and he shoots the boy in the back. It's a horrific scene. And what it shows powerfully is the slavery this man is under, slavery to his own hatred, to his own self, to his own pride, and it leads him to do horrific things. In and of ourselves, We are slaves to our own self-interest. We see it in in other places too. In another movie, Wall Street, Gordon Gekko, very famous line, greed, for lack of a better word, is good. We're all outraged by that. But it's really just the embodiment of a very famous famous author, Ayn Rand. Maybe some of you have read her works, and, and there are many fascinating things in them. But this was Ayn Rand's perspective. If any civilization... Uh, is to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men have to reject. 
She was an unabashed, selfish person. She said, selfishness is good. Again, men and women who are not believers can say and do many good things, but we are all slaves to self. Ayn Rand is a slave to self. We can't wrap our hearts around any other way. That's our nature in and of ourselves. Verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul couldn't even see how out of phase he was with God, despite the fact he was in zealous religious devotion to him. He was a slave to his national pride. He was a slave to his theological certainty, and it led him to violence and brutality. But Christ set him free from that, from that nature. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul was freed. He was freed from being a champion of the law and freed from his national pride, as well as being freed from being a persecutor of the church to become a servant of grace and the greatest church planner the world has ever seen. How? Because God's mercy freed him from that shame, from the corruption of his nature. And knowing that he was freed, the joy carried him into whatever circumstance God called him. Now, if you put your trust in Christ... When he gives you a new life, he gives you a new nature. You are a new person. You're no longer a slave to that old self. It's not that you don't feel the power of temptation. I'm not saying that. And indeed, it's very powerful. And you will fail at times. But you will also know the desire to do the will of God from the heart. You'll look at it and go, I shouldn't have done that. I need to do right. This is a freedom not from struggle, but a freedom to struggle. Doesn't necessarily feel like a freedom, but it is. Before, you didn't even know you were doing wrong, but now you're aware and you're free to fight against it. You will know the desire to do the will of God. Are you a bad person? Well, I'd say if you're asking that question, that's a sign that God is doing something in you. That he's working to set you free from the bondage of self. That you can do better. That you can be better. And I would say follow that self-examination. And look not to your own strength. But to the work of God's spirit in you. To keep fleshing out that new creation. It's already done. You just need to work to see it flesh itself out. Now once we move beyond our actions. The mechanics of our hearts we might begin to ask the question that only human beings do, uh, only uh, those made in the image of God, uh, who am I? What, what defines me? Do my actions define me? Do my good intentions define me? And I would say no. What does define us? It's our relationship with the Lord. And through Christ, who has God made you to be? You're a child of God, a son 
a loved son, a loved daughter. Do you believe it? Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption uh, as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the most familiar term a child can have for a parent. And it's the confidence that Paul has in that relationship, the sure uh, bond that he has with his Lord that enables him to, to look at himself honestly, without fear. It's what enables us to look at ourselves. If we want to see that new nature flesh itself out, we've got to examine ourselves honestly. And that can be a scary thing. I don't know how many of you love going, you know, today I'm going to take about 45 minutes and do self-examination. I'm excited about it. I'm not excited about it because of what I'll probably see when I do that. But we can do it without fear because we know our relationship with God is secure. And when we do that, there's a transformation that occurs. We, we, we sort of see it in, in Paul's life if we put some verses together in chronological order. There, we see this interesting progression. In, uh, in the year 55 AD or thereabouts, Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15, he, he writes of himself this way. He talks about how Jesus appeared to James, then the apostles, last of all, uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles." I'm the least of the apostles. Then a few years later, he writes the letter to the Ephesians in about 62 AD. And he writes that uh, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Okay, least of the apostles. Now he's least of the saints. And then one of the last letters he wrote before he died, he wrote to uh, a, a, um, a disciple, Timothy, saying that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. As he went on in his life, and perhaps the context of those letters sort of drove exactly how he phrased things, but, but you're seeing this progression. I'm the least of the apostles. No, no, no. I'm the least of the saints. No, no, no. I'm the worst of sinners. Paul's confidence in the gospel led him to be more and more honest and humble about Himself, And there was this diminishing sense of self, but a growing sense of Christ in him. And it was powerful. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul was so taken with the joy of the freedom that he had in Christ, of going from a slave to a son that it led him to do crazy things. It led him to strange lands. It led him to take on difficult journeys. It led him to endure criticism, persecution, imprisonment. It led him to death. He was compelled by the love of God to love Gentiles, Others, people at the beginning of his life that he hated. He gave his life for them. 
because nothing in this life held him captive anymore. Now, do you want to know that freedom? Now, some of us, to be honest, prefer our slavery. Uh, it's predictable, it's known, and being compelled by joy over our freedom and love for the people around us might really might take us to hard places. It might take us to speak to issues of injustice, or it might speak, lead us to speak a word of reconciliation when, when our friends really want us to take sides. Or maybe it just means changing family routines so that our family can be more engaged with worship or service instead of just going to yet another children's activity. Now, don't hear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. That's not what I'm saying. But boy, even changing the family routine can seem scary. God calls us to something more. Something more scary, something more uncomfortable, but more joyous and magnificent. He calls us to freedom. So this week, I want you to be thinking about this. This week, how might you answer the call to freedom, to live as free in Christ? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had this morning to praise you, to pray to you, to hear your word, and we do ask that by your spirit you would use this miraculously to make us more like Christ so that when we leave this place, we can be more a blessing to our communities and to our families than, than when we came. Work in our hearts a kind of freedom that will allow us to follow you into hard places, to say hard things, not because we're arrogant, but because we love you and we love the people around us. Work that in us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.